Wow. There is no way I can tell y'all how much I love these guys. And our youth group, goodness, we are blessed. We have such a great staff who leads in godliness and righteousness and holiness. And these young men and women have been under the influence all the way back with Wendy as a children's minister to so many of them, and Steve and Wes as youth ministers to them, and then they're leading us today. And I don't know if you know that the one song there in the middle, Landon actually wrote that song. I don't know if you connected that. If you've never heard that song, it's because you've never heard that song. Uh, Landon wrote that. When did you write that, Landon? Where are you? When did you write that? This year? About two months ago. They just recorded a CD, these guys. So I'm like in line already to, to buy that. Uh, we are blessed, and it's because of Jesus. Let's not miss what's really going on. They were singing and leading us because they love Jesus, and it exudes from their lives. And, uh, and I'm just glad to be here. <laughs> this is great. Hebrews 10. What a, what a great text to exalt Jesus with today. Um, no guilt in life, no fear in death. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to pass to us. Uh, there's, there's not a better song to illustrate the text and text to illustrate that song. No guilt in life, no fear in death. We're going to be talking about that no guilt in life today in Hebrews chapter 10. Everyone is compelled by some sense or need of wanting to be right. There is something that drives us. Some part of it very wicked, rooted in pride. Some of it very proper, rooted in a desire to be right with our Maker. But everyone has a sense that is compelling and pushing and pulling and and forming and shaping how they live with a desire to be right. It's what causes arguments. Hostilities, wars. One says, I'm right. The other says, no, I'm right. We're right. Y'all aren't right. You're wrong. And there's this tension that lives in all of humanity that is rooted in a pride of desiring to be right, but it goes back to the fall. God laid in every heart a need to be right with God. We talked about how the conscience is part of that process over the last several weeks, and it was wonderful how Preston came in and shared exactly interleaving with and matching up with all that we've been sharing about this conscience-relieving work of God through Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to walk through six truths found in Hebrews chapter 10 that help us understand what it means to arrive at perfection. We're entitling this Perfection Achieved, and we're going to explain that as we go so that we actually identify what perfection means so that we don't get off course. So let's jump into the text in chapter 1. 
And then I'll share with you why the word perfection is important here. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, I'll explain that in just a second, and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. There's a sense in all of us that we want our conscience to be clean. And we have some options of how to make that work. I shared them with you several weeks ago, but there are three primary areas that we work in. First, we try to make our conscience clean by keeping enough of the rules to try to balance out some sense of right and wrong in our lives. We, we do something bad, we feel that if we could do something good, we can make up for it. And so many people go around working on trying to balance, and their, their conscience is kind of semi-soothed by doing good works to sort of balance out the bad works in their lives, the sin. That's one of the ways we try to cope with our consciences. The second primary way is that we try to change the rules so that we feel like we're living up to the standard. And so we want the rules to be different for us. And so we work societally to sort of bring the rules down. You saw that this week in what the Supreme Court decided about uh, men marrying men and women marrying women. Essentially, what these folks want to do is bring the rule down so that they can meet the rule and feel okay about the sinful behavior that's in their life. So let's adjust the rules. Let's dumb them down. So you got one group that's trying to use the rules to balance. you got another group that's trying to bring the rules down. And then the third group is working all the time just trying to keep all the rules and obsess with that, trying to do everything all the time right, but only to have their conscience continually provoked by failure. And no matter which one of those three groups you might find yourself in, one trying to balance your good and evil, one trying to bring the rules down so that you feel like you're keeping enough of them to meet the standard of being right, or whether you're just uh, really passionately trying to do everything right and constantly finding that you can't, There is hope for you in what the text gives us today. And there's a revelation here of what we call the gospel. The good news for sinners. So let's break it into six parts. Number one, God reveals the gospel through shadows. Through shadows. Verse 1 says... For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. I don't know if you played the little connect the dots game when you were a child. Did any of y'all do the connect the dots? Y'all remember what I'm talking about? I loved connect the dots pictures because I wanted to guess what they were before I drew them. And so I actually went online and saw that you have online some free connect the dots games that you can download and print and some of them are very simple you can see from the very first picture exactly what it is some of them are very complex and until you draw all the lines in you have no idea of what it is here's the way that the old testament works the old testament was a connect the dots shadow and until all the dots are connected 
the whole picture's not there. And they were not connected until Christ. And in Christ, all the dots are connected and the picture all of a sudden makes sense. But the Old Testament was a connect the dots. It was a shadow, but the shadow was important because it gave five very important dots to be connected. The first one was sin. The Old Testament starts out with God made everything good, 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 very good. And then sin enters the world and it becomes bad, 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 very bad. And we need a Redeemer to fix that that's broken. Sin enters the world and death through sin. So sin is one of the primary dots that has to be connected in understanding this picture through shadows. B, separation. Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden and away from the presence of the Lord. And the presence of the Lord is only promised as He comes down as a Redeemer and promises to dwell with His people through redemptive acts. So there's sin and separation. And then there's C, substitution. The sacrificial system is introduced and explained clearly in the Old Testament where this animal takes the place of the sinner. This animal takes the place of the offender. This animal takes the place of the one who is unrighteous. And this animal serves as a substitute. This animal's body takes the punishment of death and suffering. And so the dots are being connected. And then sacrifice we find out that the animal is not only a substitute in our place, but it actually has to die. Something has to lose its life that we may have life. And so the wages of sin is death, is driven home in this outline, this shadow, in this connect the dots of the Old Testament. And then letter E is satisfaction. There's this sense that once the animal dies... Substitution has occurred, sacrifice is finished, that there's some sense that God could be satisfied, but not yet. It's sort of a, it is, but it's not yet picture that God would be pleased by this, but, but it's not clear how he would be pleased by this. And so, this cycle, this picture, sin, separation, substitution, sacrifice, Satisfaction is woven into the fabric of the Old Testament as an outline, as a connect the dots. There will be many more details and dots to be connected, prophecies and exact dates and times and all of these things that will take place that will be a part of redemptive history. Actions and, and reactions that will be a part of identifying who Jesus is as He fulfills all of these prophecies. But these five points keep pounding, pounding, pounding at their souls through number two. God reveals the gospel through reminders. These reminders were used to drive home the shadow meaning, the meaning behind the shadow. The thing that was going to be repetitive was that the people were sinful, that sin brought a separation, that separation needed a substitution, that substitution called for sacrifice, 
that sacrifice would bring satisfaction and bring the people back out of their sin and out of their separation into a relationship with God. And so here in 10, 1 and 2, listen. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would have no longer had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So the reminders came. Letter A, they were reminded through revelation. God revealed His holy law to them. God was kind to come down to us and to personally inscribe the stone tablets revealing to us His nature and our nature. Revealing His holiness and our sinfulness. God reminded through revelation, through giving the story of creation to Moses, to giving the story of the fall to Moses so that he might record it, to give the story of Cain and Abel, and to give the story that leads all the way up to the life of Abraham, and then on through Abraham until Moses. God revealed these things through His Spirit to His servant Moses who recorded these things and passed them on to us. That's why the law, the Bible in the Old Testament is so important to us because It is an act of God revealing His holiness and our sinfulness. Letter B, reminded through repetition. Look in verse 1 again. Notice the words year by year. Notice the words continually offer. There's repetition. Look again. In verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. God, through repetition, is driving home the story of sin, separation, the need for a substitute, the need for sacrifice, and one day that He would be perfectly and permanently satisfied and accept His people forever. This is all being given through these reminders. The point is clear. The prescribed repetition of sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament law was a built-in testimony to their inadequacy. They did not perfect the people. They did not deal with sin decisively, finally, once for all. Notice what it says there in verse 2. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. If the sacrifice worked, you wouldn't have to do it again. But you had to do it again and again and again. And if you think of the, the horror of the act of sacrifice and, and its picturesque uh, illustration of, of a substitute and a sacrifice and of suffering and death, all of this is going on in this reminder year by year. And see, they're reminded through illustration. The Lamb The bull, the goat, was a living illustration of the wages of sin and the plan of God. It's so important as you lead up through the Old Testament that this hinge moment in the whole Bible is in Isaiah 53 where the first time the idea is clearly stated 
that the Lamb is a man. The illustration begins to have more dots to connect. Now we start to understand that the substitute is not an animal, but a man. And so now we begin unfolding the story of redemption in the Old Testament through revelation, through repetition, and through illustration. God is setting the stage for humans to understand the nature of the gospel. Third, number three, God reveals the gospel through contrasts. So here in chapter 10, we've seen this revelation of the gospel through the shadows. Connect the dots. We've seen it through this reminders. And now there's this series of contrasts. Read with me the contrast, starting with verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Wait, 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 stop. (laughs) Isn't that what we've been doing all the time? Haven't we been since the days of Moses? And actually there's hints that that was taking place long before the law was given. But haven't we been prescribed since the days of Moses to come and to carry this out and and, and in hopes that forgiveness will be given? And all of a sudden you're dropping on us the idea those animals can never take away sin. Well, how do we know that? Well, you would have only had to offer one. You've offered gazillions of them. Over and over and over. You've been killing these animals for hundreds of years. And nothing's come of it yet. Why haven't you been able to quit killing the animals? So, God reveals the gospel through contrasts. Letter A, many priests versus one high priest. All these priests served all these years and the job never got done. Each one would be appointed and he would go to work and he would live and he would die and sin would still be there and they'd still be killing animals. Many priests, but this Jesus is the one final, last, only high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And here he stands. Letter B, many sacrifices versus the one sacrifice. Look in verse 4. You've got blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then you've got the contrast through verse 10. Read there. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. How many times? Once. So you've got the contrast. Many priests. One high priest. Many sacrifices. One the one sacrifice. Let her see. Many offerings. One offering. In other words, the process of making the offering was over and over. I give my sheep. I give my cow. I give my goat. I'm offering. I'm offering. I'm offering. But it's like I'm feeding this thing that can never get full. So every year we go back through it nationally. And however often necessary, I go through it personally. But it never gets fixed. And my conscience is never clear. Verse, uh, excuse me, letter D. Many animals, one body. There's this interesting picture given here in verse 4. 
in verse 5. Look at what he says. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You've got all these carcasses, all these bodies of animals. And, and they were familiar with that. They'd seen it. They'd grown up with it. They knew what it was like to see the animal come in live. They knew what it was like to see the animal's throat cut and the blood to spurt out onto the altar. They knew what it was like for that last bleat to come out or that last moo to come out. That, 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 that goat to let one more bleat out. And, and all of a sudden he's dead. And he's a carcass and he's a body and he's, he's, he's eviscerated and he's burned. And they're all doing that over and over and over. It never stops. And all these bodies, all these carcasses, all these bones, all this smoke. But the one body, look in verse 5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired. But this is a great verse. But a body thou hast prepared. For me. The writer puts these words on whose lips? Not David's. Jesus's. This is the Messiah speaking of himself from the heavenly abode through David, saying, A body thou hast prepared for me. Jesus is going to inhabit a human body. This is the picture of the incarnation. Where God comes into the world in the womb of Mary and is enfleshed, incarnate. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. Here, many animals, but one body. Notice that that theme is given again, as I just mentioned in verse 10. By this will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. He's making very clear that there was a, there was a, a living, breathing body. Jesus was not a spirit. He's not an apparition. He was a living, breathing, fully God, truly man, walking among us sinlessly, and His body bore all of the punishment for our sin. So many animals, but one body. And then letter E is so glorious. Standing priests versus sat down at right hand of God. Look at what it says in verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Why? Because they're reminders. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. Do you know what that means? It, there's three things behind that. First, you sit down because the work is done. That's what's happening. It's finished. He sat down at the right hand of God because the work was done. Why did the priests always stand? They never got to sit because the work was never finished. The priest couldn't sit because there was another sacrifice, another sacrifice. And he did that all of his life. When he was serving priestly duty, he could not sit down. So he stands daily offering, offering, offering over and over. But here, Jesus... One offering sits down. First, work is done. Second, 
God is satisfied. So he gives Jesus the seat of honor at his right hand. God's honoring of Jesus at his right hand is his statement that the work was accepted and that God was satisfied that that was enough. This is the carrying out of those five things, sin, separation, substitution, sacrifice, and finally, satisfaction. Prior to this, there was no rest for a priest. But now the one priest has brought us into God's rest. Jesus, our Savior. So we move into number four. God's revealed the gospel through these contrasts. By the way, I need to go back to letter E because I told you there were three there. I want to give you all three. I said the work is done. First, second, that God is satisfied. Third, if you remember the text, it says, verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler of this universe. And he is enthroned. And he is waiting for the day that all are brought into submission. And Philippians tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is his Royal, sovereign rule over the universe. Okay, now we move to number four. God reveals the gospel through objective. What is the objective of the gospel? What is it doing? What is it accomplishing? This is very important. Hence, this is why we have the title, Perfection Achieved. There is a thought process through the book of Hebrews I need to take you through. Back up in Hebrews just a little bit. Let's go all the way back to chapter 2. Now, if you've got a highlighter, or if you could take something and write some notes here, this would be a good time, because the word perfected has been woven all through this book to get to this moment that we're at, perfection achieved. So we need to know what has it meant. In chapter 2, verse 10, For it was fitting for him... For whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Jesus was perfected, which means he accomplished the goal and the task that was given him by the Father by carrying out the full mission of salvation. He was perfected. He came to the goal for which he was sent. The word perfection means to reach the goal, to accomplish the task, to finish the work, to become the end for which you were sent or made. Jesus comes to perfection through his suffering. This is not a moral perfection. He already had that. This is an operational perfection of finishing what was before him. Go further to chapter 4. Excuse me, I I took you too soon. Um, Come with me to chapter 5. 
verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. In chapter 6, verse 1, the word maturity there is the same word as perfection. Now, chapter 7, verse 11. Draw this together. Hang with me. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, verse 11. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest? This is saying, why did you have a priest according to Melchizedek if the Levitical priest could bring you perfection? He was saying the Levitical priest couldn't bring you perfection. Okay, follow his thinking to verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Verse 25, hence also he is able to save perfectly. The word that you may have translated there is forever or completely or to the uttermost. It's the same word. It means perfection, the end to which operationally he was working. Then you see at the end of verse 28, the law points Men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Keep following. We're going to get there. Chapter 8, verse 7. Excuse me, verse 8. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will perfect a new covenant. You may have the translation effect or enact there, but it is perfect. Then chapter 9, verse 9. Stay with me. I know, I'm stretching it out which is a symbol for the present time, verse 9 says of chapter 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Okay, stay with me. Now come to chapter 10. We're going to understand what does it mean to have perfection achieved. For the law, verse 1, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year offered, which they offer continually, this cannot make perfect those who draw near. So stop there. What is being said is that there is nothing that man can do to reach the goal that God intends of a perfect relationship between God and man. No law, no sacrifice, no rule, no activity, no behavior, no trying on your part can ever bring that relationship back into the union that God intended it to be when he made man. Nothing that you or I do, no effort, no trying, no religion, no philosophy, no morality, none of those things can make your relationship with God perfect or right. None. So now what is being said in chapter 10 is the apex of the gospel presentation. It is summarized... In chapter 10, verse 14. This is stunning. After saying the only perfect one so far is Jesus, he was made perfect through his suffering. That means he had absolute, absolute 
perfect obedience to God the Father. He had absolute perfect relationship to God the Father. Everything he did met its intended operational goal in every conceivable way so that he was the epitome of perfection. Not just in moral character, but in operational work. He accomplished the task. And that task was redemption. And so here's the verse that is the apex of the gospel teaching in the book of Hebrews. It is in chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My brothers and sisters, this is the best news you can ever hear. Your relationship with God was made perfect through Jesus Christ alone. Your salvation was made perfect through Jesus Christ alone. Your eternal life was made perfect through Jesus Christ. Christ alone. The forgiveness of your sins was made perfect through Jesus Christ alone. What has happened here is that the perfection that he achieved operationally and relationally with God, he gives to you as if it were your own. So that operationally and relationally, what Jesus was to the Father, you now become. This is the gospel. It is Jesus doing something for you that He may do something in you. The end result of which that all He has done for you is credited to your account so that your standing with God isn't somewhat, isn't maybe, isn't hopefully, it is perfect. You have been received by God by faith in Jesus Christ irrevocably. And there is nothing that can change that. And it is rested in nothing other than the work of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with your performance, your religion, your morality. It has to do with the genuineness of where you have placed your faith. That's where he's at. So, God reveals the gospel through the objective. What is God's objective? To bring you into the quality of relationship He has with His own Son. That's why we are called adopted sons and daughters and Jesus is called our brother. We become the children of the living God through Jesus Christ. So, relationally, we are 
at that place of complete acceptance. Number five, God reveals the gospel through identifiers. Now, this is important because everyone wants to lay claim on being a son or daughter of God. You can go all over the media and find people constantly saying, we're all children of God, we're all brothers and sisters that are children of God. And there's this sense that, as Paul says in the book of Acts, that generally speaking, yes, because he's our creator. But relationally speaking, no. The only ones who are in a parent-child relationship with God have gotten there through adoption by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And he makes that clear in verse 14. This is important. Listen to how he says it. For by one offering he is perfected for all time. Who? That's the question you've got to stop there and say. For by one offering he is perfected for all time. Who? Well, he says it. Those who are being sanctified. The identifier on your life is threefold. First, it is you who are being sanctified. We who are being sanctified. That means that you have been set apart and are experiencing an increasing state of holiness because God dwells in you and you are being transformed into the likeness of His Son. He marks you by your holy change. He has perfected for all time by one offering those who are being sanctified. He marks us by setting us apart and changing us. The second identifier is found in verse 16. This is the covenant that I will name with them, uh, make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will write my laws upon their heart. The second identifier is that we have an awareness in our heart of the nature of sin and the nature of God, and it matters to us. This is not perfection in lifestyle. Don't, don't, mis, uh, don't misconstrue perfection of relationship with perfection of achievement in the sense of I don't have any sin anymore. That's not where we are. We're getting there. We're going to be made like Him. But right now we're in transition. We're being made like Him. And the way that He's done that is He has made us holy. He's set us apart. And He's written something in our heart that's inescapable to us all. It's a knowledge of His holiness. It's a knowledge of our sinfulness. And it's a, it's, a, it's a care about that so that we want to leave sin and we want to embrace holiness so it marks us by making us different. The next He marks us by this. I will put my law in their mind. What does that mean? Let's make it simple. Holiness is a heart with a passion that loves God and who He is and hates sin and what it is and a mind that contemplates that so as to pursue it in order to know Him. 
The writer to the Hebrews is not going to let the gospel get confused with easy believism, with raising a hand or filling a card or going through a baptistry and then going on with your life as if God doesn't matter. He's not going to let us have an idea here that somehow salvation is this moment where I check a box and go on about my business because I know that I've got fire insurance and I'm not going to hell. That will not be in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, he's saying, you who are those who are perfected in relation to God, you are those who are marked by holiness of life, holiness of heart, Holiness of mind, a heart that passionately pursues the knowing of God, a mind that contemplates the person and worth and nature of God, not in perfection, but in direction. This is a warning and a comfort. Because there are many who name the name of Christ whose hearts show no inkling of the inscription of God's law and whose minds show no contemplation of God. And those persons should back up and analyze the truth of the gospel in their lives. So, we close number six. Here we go. God reveals the gospel through consequence. This is glorious. What is the consequence of the gospel in a person's life? Well, the first consequence, letter A, they are perfected. You reach the goal that God was after. You have a relationship with Him. What broke in the Garden of Eden? The relationship with God. Sin came in. Man was separated from God. There was a need then, because of sin and the separation, for a substitute and a sacrifice that would one day satisfy God so that we could be brought back into relation with Him, like in the Garden of Eden, where we have intimate fellowship with God personally and can boldly approach the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. That's what the Gospel gives us. Every one of us who are here who believe in Christ, who've repented and trusted Him, we have a personal relationship with God. It's not at the height that it can be because one day that's coming. One day that will be consummated at its fullest. But it is now. Did you know you can talk to God as His child? And because of Jesus, He will listen to you. No matter how small or how big the problem is, the need is, He He will converse with you. We sing, He walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. We sing about that relationship. We've come into a completed relationship. It is not at its fullness, but it has its perfect solution. Christ. Letter B, they are forgiven. What does He say? He says there's forgiveness of sins. There's forgiveness of sins. God God has forgiven your sins. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that great? Isn't that the thing that we're looking for? I want to be right with God. How can I ever be right with God? The only way is He forgives my sins. Letter C, their sins are remembered no more. Have you thought how cool that is? 
that God's not going to bring it up? God's not going to hold it against you. God's not up there going, "Hmm, hmm, hmm, just wait. I'll straighten that out. No, God is willing to... Look in the verses there. What does it say in verse 17? He says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What freedom we're being offered in the gospel. And then finally... Letter B, letter D, they rely on Christ to clear their consciences. Look in verse 18, an important text. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. I want to I I address you very personally for a moment. Because I believe many of you, like me, can get caught in a trap. And Here's the trap. You go about life, you're born again, you know Christ, you have the law written on your heart, you have the contemplation in your mind, contemplation of His Word in your mind, and you're going about life, and then you, and you blow it somewhere. You blow it. You just, you just blow it. And because it's written on your heart, your heart is crushed. And because it's written in your mind, your mind is racing. And suddenly, you begin grasping at things that were old ways of coping. You start making promises to God. God, I'll do this and I'll go to church 18 times. I'll I'll visit on a Wednesday night and I'll do a Bible study and an outreach and three days of visitation. And you start doing what I call Baptist penance, where you're trying to work some deal with God to undo what you just did. Don't do that! Run to Jesus. He wants to cleanse your conscience right now. No questions asked. That's what He's after. God is not trying to make you a guilty servant. Enslaved to what you've done wrong and trying to use religion to make it right. God does not desire that. What He desires is for you to boldly approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in your time of need. The gospel is that faith in Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And that our consciences are not cleansed by behavioral action, but by faithful trust. And faithful trust produces obedience. Would you bow with me? I have to believe that some of you that are 